passage in 1 Peter that we're going to be looking at is on page 1078 in the Pew Bibles, if you don't have your Bible with you. We're not going to get there quite yet. We're going to do a little bit of work before we get there. Um, If you haven't been with us, we've been in the middle of a short series on um, what we call ecclesiology. That's a... uh, fancy church word um, about the study of the church is what that means. And so this is part four of this four-part series. We're going to be done this week. We'll be back in the Gospel of Matthew next week. Um, But what we've been talking about, we started out with this idea of what the church is. The church is this amazing uh, organism, this creation of Jesus that he's made uh, to put his people into and to through the church to change the world. And we read through the book of Ephesians and, and, and we hopefully walked away just kind of marveling at who God is and how awesome his church is and the privilege that we have to be a part of it, even in the midst of its flaws. And then the week after that, we talked about how do you actually get to be a part of the church? What does it look like to become a member of what the Bible calls Christ's body? We talked about repentance and faith, believing the gospel. We talked about baptism and communion and receiving a calling and a gifting from the Lord. And then we... uh, Last week, talked about some specific things about membership at Revelation Church. What does it look like to be a member here uh, in, in this place, this particular expression of Christ's body. Today, we're going to finish up the series. We're going to talk a little bit about leadership, how the church is organized, how it's structured, how it's led. And a couple things about our series. We're going to do a Q&R, a question and response this at the end of the service today. And so I've been inviting everyone to text in questions to... Um, that number, 208-640-6565. If you have questions about anything we've talked about over the course of this series or anything that we talk about today, text in your questions and we'll do our best to interact with those at the end of the study today. And then also, we've been talking about formal membership at Revelation Church. What does it mean to say, I want to be a part of this body. I want to covenant with the other people here and give, be all in in this place, uh, to support one another, to hold one another accountable, to um, uh, give of myself for the benefit of the whole. And there's some, there's, a, there's some things we've talked about. We've talked about the church bylaws. We've talked about the membership covenant. Those things are available at that website. Um, membership covenants are also available at both doors today. If at the end of today, you decide, yeah, I want to I wanna be a part of Revelation Church. I want to be a member here. Uh, You can take one of those and fill that out. So, today we're going to talk about leadership. A couple months ago, I was at an event. I was asked to um, be a part of a a live filming event. I I do video work uh, part-time, and I was asked to be a part of this. And I arrived and the person who asked me to be a part of it was not there when I arrived at the venue. They were not going to be there. I didn't know that. Um, But I was one of several professional audio, video, camera people, really talented people that had arrived at this event to do the production work. And so I started asking questions. So what, where do you want me to set up? What, What camera angles do you want to use? How should we light this? 
And everyone who is, everyone who I respect very greatly, who are all very talented, just kind of went, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't, what do you think? I don't know. And for about 15 minutes, we just kind of floundered. And no one was unable to make those decisions. No one was untalented or unskilled, but no one was leading. No one was taking the responsibility for it. And at one point, I just finally said, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to go there and set that up, and I'm going to do this, and we're going to get this this way. And, and everybody just jumped into action, and we got it done, and it was great. But until somebody decided, this is who's going to have the authority over this situation, nothing got done. And I think we find that in the life of the church. We don't see leadership arise in the church because leaders are better, because pastors are special or something like that. We see leadership arise in the church because somebody has to be responsible. And God appoints leaders from among the members of a church. So if you are a Christian, if you are called to leadership, God might say, hey, I want you to fill this role. I want to give you this responsibility. I want to bestow an authority on you for a, a biblical office to lead God's people. And that's a great privilege, but it's not a reflection on whether you're better than other people or smarter or wiser. It's just a reflection on somebody is called to lead. And God hopefully reveals that in a body and stuff gets done because of good leadership. And so this has been the case in the church for the last 2,000 years, and churches have done leadership differently. And so I want to very quickly kind of go through different basic ways that leadership gets done in the church. Maybe you have some experience with different kinds of church leadership, depending on the, the kinds of churches you've been involved in. Maybe you have no experience with this, these ideas, and I think it's just good to know. So there's three basic forms of church government throughout church history. The first one is the Episcopalian form of government. Episcopalian government is defined by regional leaders that oversee groups of churches. So churches will have a leader, and that leader will report to a leader above that leader in maybe a, a city or a region. That leader will report to maybe a national-level leader, and that leader will report possibly to an international-level leader. Many denominations function this way, where uh, leadership and authority comes from the top down to the local level. Examples of this is like the Episcopalian Church itself, the Roman Catholic Church, where most people are familiar with the Pope. The Pope is kind of in charge of the Catholic Church in many ways. He doesn't have absolute power, but he does have a lot of power, and he can decide something, and it trickles all the way down to local Catholic churches. Uh, the Salvation Army, which I was a part of for several years, functions the same way. There is a, a, there's an office in London called the General, and they are in charge of the Salvation Army. And, they, and, and if you go to, say, the Croc Center in our city, there is a leader at the Croc Center that oversees that facility, but they report to a leader in Seattle, and they report to a leader in Southern California, and they report to the General in London. And if the General decides everybody has to wear pink hats, 
then everybody has to wear pink hats because they're in charge. And so authority trickles down from the top. Proponents of Episcopalianism do not find much scriptural basis for this leadership model in the Word of God. Um, that might be a little problematic to you. That's a little problematic to me. Uh, Episcopalian um, author that I read this week wrote, the New Testament suggests the seed, if not the full flower, of this kind of government. So he's saying, we don't actually find this in the Bible, but we find things that we think will blossom into this given enough time. And the truth is, is, that, is that's what we see in church history. Starting in the second century, this is how the church started to organize itself with bishops overseeing territories. And Ignatius, who was a church uh, leader in the second century, thought that having a bishop oversee a group of churches allowed that bishop to protect the church's from false teaching. They could oversee all the local leaders and keep an eye on what was going on. The contrary to that, though, is that a bishop could also promote false teaching and, and do a great disservice to a group of churches. But still, many churches are organized in this manner. The second major category of church government is called Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism is very similar to Episcopalianism, but instead of having a single leader at each level, it has a group of leaders at each level. A group of people oversee a church, a group of people oversee a region, a group of people oversee maybe a country. And Presbyterians would look to the story in Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council for their inspiration for leadership. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, there's a lot of churches in the Roman world that are primarily filled with non-Jewish people, and they get word from some teachers that they have to become Jewish. The men have to get circumcised. They have to celebrate uh, Jesus on the Sabbath. They have to stop eating bacon. Terrible things. And they go, wait a minute, what's going on here? And so some leaders get together in a council in Jerusalem at the first church, the mother church, and they make some decisions about, no, this is, this is how we believe the Gentile churches throughout the Roman Empire should conduct themselves. And so Presbyterians would point to that story and say, look, this is Presbyterian church government. The third category is called congregationalism. Congregationalism says that the local church is an autonomous body. The local church is the thing that Jesus made when he made the church. And the local church oversees its own affairs. It doesn't have a body over it. There is no hierarchy in a congregationalist church. Congregationalist churches are very democratic oftentimes. Um, it's, it's interesting if you study the history of our country, many of the ideas of democracy and Republican government come from largely Baptist congregationalist leaders who were working this out in their churches and then brought it into the public square. Um, the scriptural basis for this, there's an awful lot of scriptural basis for congregationalism. We talked a lot, a lot about it last week, but Issues of church discipline. If somebody in a body is walking in a way that severely goes against the gospel, Jesus says that body is responsible for correcting that person. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5 when that actually happens. Other areas that Congregationalists will point to are the letters to the seven churches in the book 
of Revelation. Jesus writes letters to these seven churches, and he addresses the churches. He says, hey, you guys have done really well in these areas, and you've done really poorly in these areas, and I want you to um, work on this, uh, or that he praises them for this other thing, and he speaks to the churches. And so Congregationalists would say, churches have authority over their own uh, government. And so these three major ideas are in pretty constant competition in the church world. And they're not ideas that we should really fight that much about. There are good Jesus-loving people that attend in churches of all these flavors. Although in the past, there have been some pretty bitter fights about church government, which is unfortunate. CB Northwest, which is the um, church network that we're a part of, kind of takes these standard models and blends them together, which I... That kind of fits my personality. I just like taking stuff from all over the place and blending it together. Um, but what they, what CB Northwest does and what we have chosen to do by aligning ourselves with CB Northwest is we are overseen as a church. We are autonomous, an autonomous unit. We are a local church that governs itself, but we are governed by what's called a plurality of elders. A plurality of elders means that there are is a group of leaders that oversee the spiritual affairs of the church, and they are all equals. Um, Maybe you've experienced a church environment where there is a senior leader who has a group of elders that serve the um, vision of that senior leader. That's a popular way to organize a church. There's also a, a group of elders that appoint a pastor, and that pastor serves the vision of the board of elders. In our church, a plurality of elders means that there is no senior leader. There is no one person that's greater, has more power, more authority than anyone else. The entire body of elders, the entire leadership team are equals. This is um, a little odd in our context because we are a church plant. We are a fairly new church. We've been in existence for a year and a half. And this role I serve as elder here, I serve kind of alone, which means that a lot of the decisions that get made around here are decisions that I make. We have a plurality of elders in that there are three other elders on our elder team. They're called provisional elders. They, um, if Uh, You were at our annual meeting last year. They sent in videos and introduced themselves. But they're all pastors. They're all elders in churches throughout the CB Northwest network. And they serve alongside me. They hold me accountable. They pour their wisdom into me to help me uh, oversee this church body. But as we raise up local elders in our community, those men will retire from the board because frankly, they're not here. And it's it's just a challenge for them to lead our people well from the other side of Oregon. So a plurality of elders. Greg Allison writes in his book on church leadership, he says, without exception, every time the New Testament mentions the government of a particular church, the leadership structure is a plurality of elders. Without exception, There is no place in the New Testament that you can go look at how this church is operating and not see a group of elders leading that church. And in my mind, that's pretty good evidence for doing it that way. A lot of people tend to say that the 
the, the Bible doesn't really tell us how to lead the church. It leaves us up to just kind of figure it out on our own, but I feel like it, it does pretty well give us an, an idea of how the church is supposed to be structured. So we are overseen by a plurality of elders. We are an autonomous church. We, Revelation Church is not part of a denomination and that we do not receive orders from anyone else beyond our own body. There is no board that can change our doctrine or um, reinstate different leadership. Maybe you've read or been a part of churches where some conference convenes way out somewhere and has a determination that, oh, the thing that the churches believe forever, we're changing that, and now the church is going to believe this other thing, and it causes a lot of problems for local congregations. That's not something that will happen at our church because we are autonomous. Our church uh, practices what's called congregational affirmation. This means that the congregation, we are congregationalist in in that the, the members of the body, they serve a role in the leadership of the church. The congregation appoints elders. The congregation votes on large purchases. The congregation approves new members. And one of the ways I like to think about it is um, we have members of the House of Representatives and the Senate that we elect to do our business in Washington. I don't vote personally on uh, farm bills and budgets and declarations of war. And I don't, I don't have any role in that, but I do vote on who I think should go represent me there. And, and the congregation of Revelation Church has the privilege of saying, yeah, this person we believe is called and qualified to be an elder, and we want to affirm them in that role. And so that's a role that the membership of Revelation Church play in their leadership. We also have what's what we call regional association. We're part of a covenant community of churches called CB Northwest. And the the reason we are a part of that group of churches voluntarily is because we want to have relationship with other members of the body of Christ. A group of uh, the women from our church just got back from a camp that is owned, the campsite is owned by CB Northwest, and the camp was put on by CB Northwest, and they got to interact with women from a lot of different churches around the network. Accountability. CB Northwest churches can, can watch us and go, hey, what are you guys doing? Like, are you okay? Like, if we go off the rails, they can say, hey, can, you, can we help? And that's a service that CB Northwest provides for churches that are struggling. They're also a resource. They provide um, training and finances and, and, and other kinds of resources that help us to be successful. And so we are associated with them, not because they are a denominational head above us, but because we choose to be in covenant community with them. So that's kind of the model. Here's some specifics about Revelation Church's leadership. I said we have a plurality of elders. Our bylaws say that we have at least four. We can have more than four elders, but if we have less than four elders, there's a vacancy that needs to be filled. Uh, Secondly, any male member of the church is eligible for consideration as an elder. That doesn't mean any male member can be an elder. An elder needs to be called by Jesus to be an elder and qualified by Scripture to be an elder. Um, But... Anyone can be nominated to be an elder. 
I did say a male member. We're going to talk about women and leadership. I think there's already a question on the docket about that, so I'm going to save most of that for the Q&R. Um, but we do believe that men exercise the office of eldership in our church. Uh, elders are nominated by the members. That means members say, hey, this person should be an elder. They are vetted by the elders. So the elders will say, okay, we're going to interview this person. We're going to get to know this person. We're maybe going to train this person up and say, yes, we believe that they're called and qualified to be a leader. And then the membership affirms the leadership of the elders by voting. Elders serve a five-year term, and they have five jobs. Elders have an intercessory role. Elders pray for the people. Elders have a doctrinal role. They teach the people. They have a shepherding role, which means they care for the people. They have a developmental role, which means they equip the people. And they have a missional role, which means they evaluate what we're doing in the community to see if we're in line with what Christ wants us to be doing. The other office that our church provides for is the office of deacon. A deacon can be any member um, voted on by the church. And deacons serve the purpose of being primarily functional leaders. Deacons get stuff done. Deacons typically have authority over specific areas of the church that they lead. So that's kind of the, the background of church government this morning. If you were like, that is super boring, I totally get it. Actually, I don't. I think it's awesome. <laughs> but, but I respect the fact that you think it's boring. Uh, we're going to jump into 1 Peter. The Bible talks several times about leaders. And this section in 1 Peter, Peter is uh, giving us a little bit of insight in what it means to be a leader in the church. Uh, in the CSB Bible, which I'm reading from, there is a word missing. If some of your translations might start chapter 5 with therefore, uh, I think that's a helpful word. I'm not sure why this translation left it out. But therefore is a connecting word. It connects the passage that we're going to talk about back to the passage before it. And what Peter has been talking about is suffering. All throughout 1 Peter, Peter has been talking about how those who are following after Jesus will suffer like Jesus. If you want to model your life after your Savior who died, then its chances are you will suffer. And so then he's going to start talking about leaders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. So he says the elders, plural. Again, every time we see leaders in churches in the New Testament, we see a plurality of leaders. There's not just one person in charge. There is a group of leaders that have been called by God to shepherd God's people. And Peter calls himself an elder. I think this is super interesting because Peter doesn't have to call himself an elder. He could call himself an apostle. Peter has a special job. He's like one of Jesus' 12 original leaders. And you could probably argue that he was the leader of all those 12 leaders, that he was the, the head apostle. And he doesn't play that card. He says, I'm an elder like you. 
And I think that's interesting when we talk about leadership in general in the church, we need to f- remind ourselves that, that we're all God's family. Leaders are given responsibilities, jobs to do, but they're not better than, they're not greater than. They don't demand more respect or more honor because they're leaders. We are all God's people. And Peter puts himself on the same level as the elders that he's speaking to. And then he reminds them that he witnessed the sufferings of Christ and he shares in the glory that's going to be revealed. And, and as, as you read through 1 Peter, and I would encourage you to read through the whole book, it's not very long, Peter is constantly talking about this, this, this suffering of Jesus, the fact that Jesus walked this path that was not fun for us on behalf of his people, that the way he led was by laying his life down for others. And I want you to recognize that that as Peter begins to talk to the leaders of the church, the first thing he says is remember the suffering of Jesus. That's the framework. Any of you that aspire to leadership in God's house at any level, the framework is remember the suffering of Christ. Remember the kind of person that you say you are following and let that shape who you are as a leader. Verse two, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. The word shepherd, the the idea of a shepherd is a common um, illustration, a common metaphor of what it means to lead God's people. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the best shepherd. He's our example as a leader. A shepherd is relational. A shepherd gets to know his sheep. Jesus even says this, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Jesus' model of being a shepherd means we know the sheep, we care for the sheep, we lead the sheep. Being an elder in the church is more than being a Bible teacher. It's okay to be a Bible teacher. Like there's a, there's a job to be a Bible teacher. Maybe, maybe you get to lead a study. Maybe you get to study really hard and get a PhD and teach in a seminary or, or a, a university. I mean, if you're gifted as a teacher, that's awesome. And elders should be gifted to teach, but elders are not just teachers. They're also not just business people. Like you can't just be like, well, I want to I wanna be a leader in the church because I'm good at, with numbers. I mean, that might be helpful for the church, but that's not what it means to be an elder. To be an elder is to be a shepherd. It means to care for people, to lead people well. And he says, shepherd God's flock. Who, who do leaders shepherd God's flock? God's people. We are God's people. This is not my church or my people or my ministry. We are God's. We all belong to Jesus. 
And then he says, shepherd God's flock among you. We talked a little bit about this last week, but the local church is a way to distinguish who, who are the people of God at a specific place. Elders are responsible to shepherd God's flock among them. As an elder, I don't have a responsibility to shepherd God's flock in South Korea or Sandpoint or the church down the street. Those are all brothers and sisters in Christ whom we can love and, and, and have fellowship with. But, but my calling, I'm going to be judged for what I do, how I lead the people that have been given to me by God to oversee. And they're limited to the people in our community. He says, not out of compulsion, but willingly. I used to think this was weird. Like, why would he say not out of compulsion? I was thinking um, earlier this week that there are times when, when our bathroom drain stops working and it just, it just starts running slowly. And ultimately, my wife will say, I need you to fix it. And I know, I know what I will find when I open the cabinet and when I unscrew the trap. And it's not pretty. And yet I do it out of compulsion, right? <laughs> because I have to. Because I will not hear the end of it if I don't. Like, and, and, and I need to take care of this. Peter says, don't serve as an elder like that. And I thought, like, why, why would that be the case? Why, why would that be the encouragement? And I think it's because if you really understand what it means to be a leader in God's house, it's not an enviable position. It's not something that everyone should just be chomping at the bit to do. I mean, I don't want to say it's like cleaning the trap under the sink, but it's more like that than it is, you know, eating cotton candy. Elders should feel called by God to lead in the face of more responsibility, stricter judgment, and possible suffering for the sake of the gospel. Being an elder is an honorable office, but it's also a fearful one, or it should be. I've talked with many of the men in our community about the possibility of pursuing eldership, and every single one of them has turned me down. And it kind of bums me out because all the guys I asked like are excellent husbands and they love their kids and they love Jesus and they know the scriptures and I would just love to bring them onto the team. But it shows me that they understand what a big deal it is to lead God's people and they don't want any part of it. <laughs> and I would rather that be their perspective than like, yeah, sign me up. That sounds like fun. Because it, I mean, it is fun, but it's also grave. It's also stressful. It's also a huge responsibility. And, and God makes it clear in his word that I am going to be 
asked about the role that I played leading this church. And anyone who leads alongside me will be asked about it as well. And we will be held to account for the leadership we offered. And so don't become an elder out of compulsion. As, as much as I beg you, don't do it. <laughs> but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Don't become an elder for money or power. It shouldn't be the case that money or power are available to church leaders. But we all know that they are. If you excel as a church leader, you can become wealthy. You can get a large church. You can sell books. You can do any manner of things to earn lots and lots of money. You can be given power. There are church leaders that have the ear of the president of the United States because of their clout. And those things may or may not be good or bad. That's not the point. Peter's point is don't pursue leading God's people because you want to get rich. Don't pursue leading God's people because you want power. Because those motivations, they don't come from Christ. They don't come from the Spirit of God. Remember, Peter says, remember the suffering of Christ. He, he was the richest king ever, and he set it aside to be a human peasant and to serve people and to suffer on the cross. He has more power than anyone could possibly imagine as the eternal Son of God, and he sets it aside to live his life as a carpenter in Galilee. Like, this is the model of leadership, and anyone that's pursuing leadership in the church for power or money is doing it wrongly. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter reminds the elder that you are standing in the gap that rightfully belongs to Jesus. And someday he's going to take that place back. In a certain sense, we all have Jesus with us right now. He says that he, he left to bring the Spirit, and the Spirit of God inhabits Christians, and we walk in the Spirit, and that's a huge gift that we've been given. But in another sense, Jesus is not here. We all recognize that his kingdom has not completely come. One day, Jesus will return, set up his kingdom in full, and we will have Jesus, the good shepherd, as our king, as our leader, but Peter's saying here is that the elders of the church, they're just watching over people that do not belong to them. They belong to Christ. And he's going to return someday and ask us to give an account. But there's also a reward, right? To, to lead God's people well brings reward from Christ. Verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
So Peter does something here that's super weird and nobody can figure it out. I read like eight different commentaries this week. We think we've been talking about church leaders, elders are church leaders, and then he just starts talking about the younger people. So we've been talking about older people the whole time or we've been talking about church leaders and, and nobody really seems to know why he brings up the younger people here. It could be because in general, elders are older. I don't know what older means. Um, it could be that he's just using the word elder as church leader, and when he says younger people, he just means everybody else, kind of metaphorically. It could mean in that the churches he's writing to, the young men are just kind of a pain in the butt, and they need some discipline, and they need to listen to the elders. We don't really know. But what I love about what Peter says here is the younger people, they're, they're going to submit to the elders. The, but the elder people, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Like leadership is not an opportunity for rivalry or strife or pride or power struggles. Leadership is an opportunity for service. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be the greatest should learn to be the servant of everyone. And if you aspire to any role of leadership in the church, you should recognize that that is a downward trajectory. There is no corporate ladder in the church that brings you higher and higher and higher. There is a <laughs> escalator going down into the basement. And that's what leadership means. And Peter's exhortation here is, all of you humble yourselves before one another. And then he quotes Proverbs. He says, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're um, slowly working on moving, leaving our house and moving out. And we were doing some work this weekend and I don't know, I don't know what was going on. I never know what's going on. But <laughs> my wife and I were outside and my children were inside. And the door, the front door was shut. And I heard, and there was screaming. The little one was screaming. And you'd see the front door kind of barely crack open and then slam shut again. And then barely crack open and slam shut again. And I had to go investigate. And, and I figured out that the, the little one wasn't supposed to go outside for some reason. And the older one was preventing her from going outside. So Kara's had her body up against the door, keeping it shut. And Nora's got her hands on the doorknob, pulling it for all she can to get it open and screaming, let me out, let me out, let me out. And it was, it's pretty violent. <laughs> My children are pretty violent. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad nobody got hurt. I, I mean, usually somebody gets their hand stuck at the door and it's, there's blood everywhere and it's terrible. That did not happen. But Karis was resisting her sister, right? Like she was pushing for everything she had against the will of her sister. And there was screaming and banging and violence. God resists the proud. 
Like if I am going to put myself on a pedestal, demand more respect, more honor, more privilege, think I, ex- I, I deserve things, God's going to shut that down. He's going to actively fight against the leader that does that. And God's going to win, right? Like, I'm not going to be able to win that fight. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. What happens happens to a leader if they teach something and then they later find out that they were wrong? There's grace for that. What happens to a leader if they try their best to give godly counsel, but give somebody poor advice? There's grace for that. What happens to a leader if they think they're making a good financial decision for the church, but they waste the church's money? There's grace for that. Over and over and over again, Peter says, remember Jesus. He suffered for you and walk in humility. As leaders are raised up in this body, we will be called to walk in humility because we will screw up. We will fail. We will do the wrong thing. We will say the wrong thing. We will teach the wrong thing. And what Peter's Comfort is, is just stay humble. Be humble people. Be lowly people. And you will receive grace for that. So that's the, that's the leadership structure of Revelation Church. There's some nuts and bolts we went over. If you're more interested in that, um, the bylaws are on our website. You can, they're fascinating. You can read through them anytime you want. Um, but we want to be a people that are united on mission, right? We want, we want to be a people who say, we are in this time, in this place, for a purpose, for the sake of the gospel, because thousands and thousands of people in Coeur d'Alene do not know Jesus. And it may seem like, yeah, because that's the case, why are we talking about all of this weird leadership stuff and, and, and bylaws and, and voting? And, well, because just like when I went to that event, there was a lot of talent, there was a lot of potential there, but nothing was organized and nothing was going to get done that anyone could be excited about if it wasn't organized some way. And so as we look through scripture, we see that the church organized itself. Not because they wanted to build up their own kingdom, but because they wanted to preach the gospel to the whole world. And they needed some structures to do that. And so as we've spent the last four weeks talking about the church and the structures of the church, my hope is that if you are a part of our community, if you've been with us for a while, you would say, yeah, I, I want to get deeper into that. I want to be more committed to what we're doing at Revelation Church to bring Jesus to our city. I want to be a member. Maybe God is stirring in your heart, like, I want to, maybe I'm called to lead. Maybe I'm, I'm beginning to understand how scary that is, 
But maybe Jesus is saying, you need to step into that. Maybe you're, you're new to the, to the faith. Maybe you're new to the church and you just need to sit and learn and grow. And that's awesome. Do that. There are membership covenants. And I said, we talked about this last week. There is a, there's a set of responsibilities and privileges that our members um, adhere to. There are membership covenants on, on both tables. And, and I would just encourage you, if this is, if Revelation Church is your church home, I would say, take one home, look at it, read it, pray about it, read through the bylaws, um, emailing questions, or, or if, you, if, if, if we can go out for coffee and chat if you have questions. But make a decision to be a member of the church so that we can be united as we bring the gospel to the city. So we're going to answer a few, or respond to a few questions. You have a few questions? Okay, Spencer's going to come up. So I initially started, and I, I still I slip up and I say this is a Q&A, but I can't guarantee that I have any answers to these questions, so, but I can respond to them. <laughs> what do you got, Spencer? So we have a few questions about membership, um, and I'm going to try and wrap it into one big question. I'm sorry. No, do it. Um, so new members, when uh, they're being introduced to the church or affirmed, who are they affirmed by? Um, what's that process look like? And what are the more concrete, solidified standards um, that those memberships uh, members would uh, meet to avoid any um, false views of them preventing them from being members? Like if someone is biased or prejudiced against that person. Mm, sure. Um, yeah. So, so like if you want to be a member. And you hate me. And I, and I hate you. I'm going to vote you down. Yeah. That's just the way it is. <laughs> No, so yeah, so the membership is affirmed by the body. We see this in um, several places in Scripture. We see it in, in 1 Corinthians 5 in a, in a kind of a reverse scenario where someone is uh, acting in a way that makes the church believe that they are not Christians. They are, there's this illicit sexual relationship happening, and, and the church, the body says, we need, you need to be out from among us. We cannot affirm your calling uh, we cannot affirm your faith because you refuse to repent. And so um, they, what, what we call excommunicate that person and say, like, you, you are not, no longer a member. Uh, and that's a decision of the body. In 2 Corinthians, we see the reverse of that where Paul says, okay, you kicked them out because they were living in blatant sin, but you need to bring them back because they've repented. And that, again, is a decision of the body. So members are affirmed by the congregation. At this point in our history, um, we mo most of the people in this body that would want to become members, I believe, have a significant track record with the church. And since we do not have members, um, there's probably going to be an abbreviated process of, of uh, how the membership becomes um, official this first time around. Technically, my wife and I are members, so we could just vote all on all of, all <laughs> of you. 
But going forward, uh, we, the members have regular meetings. They have, our bylaws stipulate we have at least one annual meeting, and we can have more meetings if the elders um, call for them. And if, I'm going to look it up. If there are members to be voted on, our bylaws say... There's a lot of bylaws as I'm looking at this stack of paper. It's really not that much. <laughs> uh, requests for membership shall be made to the elders. That's the, the form on the, on the table. Um, if an individual meets the qualifications for membership, which is that they've been saved by Jesus, that they've been baptized, that they agree with our doctrinal statement, um, that they've completed a membership orientation course, which this sermon series is, is uh, functioning at at this point, and that they're 18 years old, if the elders decide that they've met those qualifications, um, they get um, recommended to the members at least two weeks before a meeting. And so if you want to be a member... And we tell all the other members that Spencer wants to be a member. And somebody goes, I know Spencer, he's a crook. We don't want him in our church. That would be something that they would need to bring to you, first of all. Matthew 18 talks about how discipline is done in the church. If they have a problem with you, they need to bring that to you and work that out. And hopefully, that's that. And then you get received in the membership because you're brothers. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work and they still think that there's a problem, then they would come to the elders and say, hey, I talked to Spencer about him being a crook and he doesn't care. And I just need you to know he's a crook. And so then the elders would go to you and say, are you a crook? And, mm -hmm. and we would work that out. And if, if we found that there was a credible reason why you didn't have a solid profession of faith, and again, not that you aren't a sinner because we are all sinners, but if, if, if we find out that you're not really a Christian mm -hmm. and you're faking it because you just want to get on our potlucks or something, um, <laughs> then that, that would be a reason to deny you membership. Um, does that make sense? Yes. Um, put, push back on that because yeah. I, I probably missed it. So some of it. if, you know, um, maybe none of that happens and I'm being voted on by the congregation, affirmed by the congregation, and there are, there's one vote saying I shouldn't be a member. Is that like majority vote? It's majority Is vote. Majority vote. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you show up at a members meeting and vote somebody down and you haven't done anything to follow the Matthew 18 process prior to that, that's on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not, yeah. Um, hopefully that answered everybody's membership questions. Um, if you have any follow-up questions, Zach is available later. Um, so you talked about elders and some of their requirements specifically for Revelation Church. Are there any requirements for deacons? Uh, deacons have to be members. And they have to be uh, called and qualified. So deacons are appointed by the elders to serve specific functions in the church. So if you're like, I want to be the deacon of hospitality, and you're just a sourpuss. You might not be qualified. <laughs> this might not be your job. Or if you want to be the deacon of children's ministry, but you hate children, like maybe, maybe that's not the role for you. Uh, but deacons are appointed by the elders 
from the membership uh, to be um, to fill certain roles, and they're also they're also voted on by the membership. Gotcha. Is there anywhere in Scripture that has requirements for elders and deacons? Several places. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, First Timothy chapter three, Titus one, are both places where uh, elders and deacons are talked about. Um, we find in uh, Ephesians four talking about church offices, First Peter five, which we just talked about. Um, Acts 20 is an example of a discussion of church leaders. Cool. Um, and then the last question, um, what is a woman's role in the leadership of the church? Are they eligible for eldership? Are they eligible for deaconship? That's a good question. Um, so this is like, we could go on and on and on and on about um, this question. And there's a lot of debate and a lot of, um, a lot of differing views throughout the church. I appreciate that the question said women in leadership because oftentimes people say women in ministry. Women are all in ministry. Everyone is in ministry. Everyone is a servant of Christ working for the spread of the gospel. So absolutely women are in ministry. The question about women being in leadership, that's a better one. So that's great. Um, I think I would first of all say that like historically, men have abused power, right? Like I, I don't think we can argue about that. Like men have taken every possible way that they can to abuse power inside and outside the church. And unfortunately, many times they have used the Bible to abuse power against women. Um, and I think that's shameful. I think the reality is the Bible elevates women in ways that no other book of its time did. If you, if you read Jesus, if you read Paul, and you read a little bit about the historical environment that they're writing in, they are saying crazy things and giving women freedom and power and legitimacy that the surrounding culture would have never been okay with. Um, saying things like, um, Paul says things like, a, a, a husband has authority over his wife, and everybody would have been, yes. And then he says, the right after that, and a wife has authority over her husband, and everybody would have gone, wait, hold on, what? Because that's insane. Nobody in the Roman world would have thought that way. And so over and over and over again, the view of women in Scripture is uh, incredibly progressive, um, there is no male or female, Paul says, in Christ in Galatians. And so we are all equals. We go back to the book of Genesis. We, and we've been in our community groups, we've been talking about Genesis and kind of how it shapes people. And the image of God is in the man and the woman. And that, again, that's crazy talk for the time. And so men and women are equal, first of all. So then, then there's basically two views in the church. There's what's called the egalitarian view, which says that every office of the church is open to men and women. And then there's what's called the complementarian view, which is basically says that there are some roles that only men can um, have. On both sides of that debate, there's a lot of gray areas. 
There's a lot of people that would say that they're complementarian, that believe things that are very different than other people that would say that they're complementarian. There, there are people that are egalitarian that would say things that are very different than other people who say they're egalitarian. I think where I have come from over the years, um, I used to think that scripture was very, very clear about all of these things. And then I started reading it a little bit. <laughs> and I have come to believe that on this particular issue, I don't think we understand the New Testament as well as we should or could. Um, and I don't know if we ever will. Paul says things in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 1 Timothy 2. He talks about how uh, women shouldn't speak in church. But then in the exact same letter, he says, when women are speaking in church, they need to wear a head covering. And I read stuff like that, and I think, well, either Paul's crazy, the Bible's not God's word, I'm not, I'm not going there, like that's, our foundation is scripture, or we haven't quite figured out what's going on. And, and I, lean, I lean towards that opinion, because I don't think Paul's crazy. I don't think he says two completely opposite things back-to-back -back virtually and isn't aware of how crazy that sounds. I think he's addressing issues in the church at Corinth that maybe we don't have enough cultural context to really grab onto. Maybe we don't really know what's going on. Um, it's pretty interesting throughout the Corinthian letter that there are, there are these times where he quotes back to the Corinthians questions that they have asked him. There are certain areas in the book that scholars are sure that he's not giving his opinion, he's spouting their opinion back to them. And I've read some really interesting stuff in, uh, recently about how some scholars believe that maybe in that role of women in leadership section, Paul's doing some similar things. So I personally have, I'm not sure where to land on those passages because I don't think we have a really good grasp of what's going on there. However, there are several passages that describe what the office of elder looks like. First Timothy 3 being a primary one. And as I read First Timothy 3, I think it makes a pretty strong case that the office of elder is limited to men. Um, we could talk about why that is or why God would do that, why the church should be run that way. That's kind of a different discussion, which we don't have time for. But because of that, where Revelation Church stands, where CB Northwest stands, is that we hold to the idea that the office of elder is for called, qualified men in the church. And that is the only office in the church that is limited to men. And so when we ask the question, what can women do in the church, I would prefer that we change that to what can non-elders do in the church? If I am not an elder, what roles can I have? And so if Spencer is not an elder, and I say, hey, Spencer, do you want to teach this Sunday? Because you're a good teacher. Is that okay? Is it okay for non-elders to teach? And I would say yes. So then I would also say, okay, so if a gifted teacher who is a woman wants to teach, but she's not an elder, because I don't believe the Bible allows for women elders, can she still teach? I would say yes, because I want to be consistent 
with what I believe scripture says, which is that the office of elder is what we're talking about, not men and women in general. So I, that, that's kind of how I like to phrase the idea. Is So if you are an elder, I believe that you can only be a, a man, but it, you can be a deacon, you can be a Bible study leader, you can lead a variety of other ministries as a woman. Because I don't think there's any... Um, uh, there's any, any reason why that is not allowed in Scripture. And, and in, in the Bible, we see tons and tons of women leading in a variety of capacities. Um, an example, in uh, the book of Romans, um, I think it's Phoebe. Is it Phoebe in Romans? Yeah. So Phoebe is the person that delivers the letter to the Roman church. Standard practice for someone who delivers a letter is that they would stand up and read the letter. And so, if Phoebe, a deaconess in the church, comes to Rome and reads Paul's letter out loud in the corporate gathering on Sunday, I don't know how to reconcile that with this idea that women aren't supposed to speak in church, if that's, if that's your view. So, um, again, we could go on and on and on about that. There's, there's so much text, there's so much discussion, but that's kind of the short answer of where we stand as a church. So the office of elder is limited to called qualified men, any other office in the church, the office of deacon, um, any other role is open to anyone who is called and qualified. Mm-hmm. Is that helpful? Maybe? I think so. Probably brings up a whole lot more questions than I answered, um, but that's okay. We'll, we'll keep working through that. Should we put your phone or number up there? My text? phone number? Yeah, yeah, you can text my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it's a hard issue, like, because there's, it's, it's one of those things where, like, it's not like the rapture, right? Like, well, I believe this about when Jesus is going to come back, and you believe that, and we can just get along. Women in leadership is an issue that you have to make a decision on. You have to operate your church a certain way, and, and you have to come to some consideration. Uh, and... Um, this is the, the, the consideration that we've come to, and, and I know I have friends who are women who will, will not be a part of our community simply because of that, and, and that's, that grieves me, but at the same time, I understand that. Like, if it's a core conviction for you that um, the office of elder is open to women, then um, it would make sense for you to find a community to where that gifting, or that, that office was open to you. Um, so yeah, that's kind of... It's a hard thing, but I think it's a thing that we can, we can look at Scripture and um, work through as friends. Um, so, yeah. We good? No more questions? No more. Okay. Well, I am going to uh, ask the band to come back up, and we're just going gonna to sing a song as we um, have communion. So the communion table is, is going to be open to everyone to um, participate in the bread and the cup. Um, and as a reminder, we, we come to the communion table every week and we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, that the, the cross of Christ is our salvation, is our hope, that the grace of God is given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. The one who had authority, the one who had power, gave it up for the good of his people. And so I would just invite you to um, partake of the bread and the cup as you feel led, as we sing.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.